so very many uh, welcomes to the Institute for Government. Thank you for joining us here today. And we didn't anticipate it would be quite such a morning after the night before. Um, and just a very quick recap for you before uh, we kick off the discussion, in case you were inexplicably doing something else last night. Um, so for the second time this year, we saw MPs voting to take over the order paper uh, of the House of Commons. So today they can try to pass legislation which is not backed by the government, a pretty unusual state of affairs. We saw Prime Minister Boris Johnson lose the first vote in the Commons of his premiership. And as he had foreshadowed earlier in the week, uh, we say in response that he now felt that uh, there was a need to have an election and to put the questions back to the people. Uh, we've now seen that motion for an early uh, election go down on the order paper for the Commons today. And then we saw Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition, and the other opposition leaders saying that they welcomed the idea of an election, but only if the bill to stop no deal had received royal assent. They would only back one if the bill had received royal assent first. And then the night ended with 21 members of the Conservative Party having the whip withdrawn. So I think we've got plenty to talk about. <laughs> um, just to introduce the panel who are here, I'll introduce the others when they arrive. So Paul Evans was, until very recently, uh, clerk of committees in the House of Commons um, after a long and illustrious uh, career in, in the Commons. Um, and Maddie Timont-Jack is a senior researcher here at the Institute <coughs> and leads our work on Parliament and Brexit. So I think I'm just going to start. We'll have a few questions, hopefully, with the panel when they arrive. Uh, then I'll throw it open to the floor because I'm sure that you all have lots of questions. I'm going to start by asking you, Maddie, yeah. to just give us a sense of how you think things might play out today and maybe over the next week or so. Is it fair to think yeah. that we might be able to see that far ahead? I mean, I think I can definitely start with today. I think that the next week might be quite challenging. Um, so, I mean, in terms of what we know is going to be happening today is that you know, MPs did pass their motion last night, so they will be considering the EU withdrawal number six bill, um, which is essentially about saying if they haven't approved a deal or haven't approved no deal by the 19th of October, the Prime Minister must go to Brussels and ask for an extension and also agree one, or they try to arrange it so that he has to agree an extension. The first date they propose is to the 31st of January next year. So the sort of proceedings on that is going, are going to start at three, um, and then the sort of the way they programmed it is that the proceedings will end at seven and votes then will start um, at that point. Uh, we haven't seen any amendments go down yet, but I can expect there will be some, a lot of manuscript amendments going down today. And last night we saw a group of Labour MPs say that they were going to table some amendments because one of which would actually be requiring the government to publish the withdrawal agreement bill, the sort of bill that we've been talking a lot about but never seen, which is about, which is the bill that was drafted to implement the deal that Theresa May agreed with the EU in domestic law. So they've now sort of turned around and said, actually, we would quite like to vote for the deal and we want to see the legal text that would implement it. Um, so that, and then after that, once we sort of dealt with the bill, and we can imagine that given the size of the majority last night, um, that they will pass it, um, then we'll move on to the early election motion, which the government has tabled, as Hannah said. Um, and given the fact that Labour and other opposition parties have basically said they won't support it until, um, until they, the bill itself has received royal assent, we probably expect it won't pass, and then it'll be up to the government to, to decide how they're going to respond to that. I think the other thing just to flag that's going on today that 
um, sort of for the parliamentary nerds is very interesting is the House of Lords are also trying to get into a position where they can consider the bill when the Commons are done with it on Thursday and Friday. So normally bills are, the sort of passage of bills aren't programmed through the House of Lords and what the Lords are going to be doing today is debating a business motion which will allow them to complete the stages of the bill on Thursday and Friday this week. Um, what's quite key there is that I think 86 amendments to that business motion have been tabled and in the House of Lords you sort of deal with each amendment in turn. So I think we're going to be seeing quite a lot of filibustering. A lot of, they're going to be potentially use, use of motions such as, you know, motions to say that the Lords stopped speaking and also motions to say that they should vote on, on the question. Um, so we'll see how that pans out. And this very idea that the House of Lords might programme their business is extremely unusual. Yeah, it's extremely unusual. We did see them try and do that earlier this year. So they did successfully end up passing a similar motion um, when the sort of previous like, rebel bill was going through the House in April. Um, and again, essentially, they tried to do a similar thing there. They tried to filibuster the progress. But in that instance, the government and the opposition sort of came to an agreement that they would consider the bill over two stages, two days. Um, whereas I think in this circumstance, it's going to be a lot more unlikely that the government will reach the same agreement with the opposition. So we now can welcome our third panellist, who's, who's made it, and very grateful indeed to Alistair Burt for joining us this morning after the events of last night. Obviously, until um, last night, a Conservative member of Parliament. Oh, and here is Sebastian Payne. We have a full panel. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Sebastian Payne from the Financial Times. If you've had time to catch yes, your breath, Alistair, what, I just... What can I tell you? Uh, so we just... <laughs> <laughs> we've kicked off with Maddie just trying to look ahead a bit to today and the rest of the week. I guess to ask you, did you achieve what you wanted yesterday? Or have you just succeeded in reducing the chances of the deal you say you want? Clearly, we succeeded in our main objective yesterday, which was to uh, provide the opportunity for the House to decide that it will get a say uh, as to the outcome of the Prime Minister's uh, visit to the European Council. If he comes back with a deal, it provides the opportunity for Parliament to consider that deal and, in my view, hopefully then pass it. Or if the Prime Minister has to come back and say, look, it's, it's no go, the House will have a chance to say uh, uh, either it accepts the deal or it will mandate the Prime Minister to ask for the extension and go beyond. I think the political purpose, certainly my political purpose, and there is an issue here that those who want to stop no deal may not all have the same objectives and we understand that. My objective is very clearly to seek to persuade the House that it should go for a deal. Um, because if it doesn't, this just goes on and on and on. Stopping no deal is not an end in itself. A never-ending series of extensions is not an end in itself. We have to bring this to a conclusion. My I, I, I get the chance to speak this afternoon, um, seconding the, uh, the bill that's got my name on it behind Hilary Benn, and I will do my best to try and persuade <coughs> colleagues that one of the things that they have to change is their attitude to this whole thing. The reason we haven't got a deal isn't because of people like me. Um, it is principally those who didn't vote for a deal in, in the past. But the reason they didn't vote for a deal is all about attitude. We have gone at this as if it's all about us. Uh, Britain has made this decision, those Europeans have got to accept it, these are the terms on which we wish to leave, and if they don't agree to them, it's they who are the stumbling block. It is immensely arrogant and it's unbelievably stupid. The reason we're in this position is we never understood why the EU wanted to negotiate as it does, 
what its stopping points are for the whole structure of the EU, we've never been prepared to accept it. If we can change that attitude, then we've got a chance to move forward. As, as you may know, I'm someone who voted to stay in the European Union, but accepted the result of the referendum, voted for the withdrawal agreement, so I rather resent being called a Remainer, uh, and presumably Remainers would not see me as a Remainer. Um, but if we want to deal with this, and Britain cannot move on politically, constitutionally, um, economically, unless we get this settled, I cannot see that there is a better way of doing it than agree a deal and move on. If people want another referendum, that's a different argument. I'm not convinced it would either change the result, and it certainly wouldn't change the bitterness or division. We have to make a decision. So my primary objective, to go back to your question, was to get the room to consider it further and use that time to seek to persuade Parliament that it cannot go on as it, as it has done, and it must find a way to an agreement, and it has to change its attitudes on these things, because if it doesn't, it will bring genuine ruin to our political system. Can you tell us a little bit about, more about Bill and just explain it? Because the government is saying that this just puts all the power in the hands of Brussels, that it's up to Brussels then to determine how long we stay, how the length of extensions, how many extensions and so on. No, the, the, the government has made out that because the bill uh, uh, suggests that uh, if the EU can't agree the date of January the 31st, then ultimately an extension is, is up to the EU, it's not up to the United Kingdom, and they suggest another date, um, that's accepted unless Parliament says no. Uh, so when the government is saying they're forced to accept it, no, they're not. Parliament will have, uh, have a say. And clearly, uh, a ludicrous extension wouldn't be accepted. But again, it, it, the language is all about, from the government side, this, this incredible aggression uh, and confrontation We've had 30 years of setting up the European Union as the enemy of Britain. Slowly, surely, drip by drip by drip, the telegraph, the mail, various writers, various politicians. And it ends this way, with suddenly realising that actually these people that we've been having a go at for so long have a say. And they've got a position. And that in order to resolve it, we have to deal with them. And it's just dawning on some members of Parliament that that is the situation. And we've just got to get over that hurdle. And what this debate allows is an opportunity. My colleagues will, will stand in the trenches and they will shout as they do. But I, I hope there's a, a, an understanding. If they look at themselves this morning and realising they're now representing a party that lost Ruth Davison at the weekend, Kenneth Clark, Sir Nicholas Soames, for God's sake, and they're going to go out to the country at some stage in the future and pretend to be a broad-based political party. Sooner or later, the penny drops, and they must say, we're going to stop this. And the best way to stop it is to start by looking at this bill, taking it sensibly, and sending the Prime Minister to the European Council in a completely different frame of mind, that with his undoubted powers of persuasion, and we saw that in Berlin and, and Paris, and we were willing to support all that until the prorogation nonsense came in, we can achieve something, but I think the mindset has got to shift, and I believe it's possible to do so. It will take some, some doing, but they should wake up this morning, look at what they've done, and think this is the time to make some changes. So you mentioned, the, as you put it, the prorogation nonsense. Um, partly, I think we are where we are today in terms of timing because of the yes. announcement yes. Uh, last week. We, you know, things might not have moved quite so fast on your front. We wouldn't. Um, if nope the government hadn't proposed a, uh, such a long prorogation of the House. Paul, can I just ask you, do you think that the prorogation, the lengthy prorogation, 
would be less significant if this bill, for those people trying to prevent the UK leaving without a deal, will it be less significant if Alistair's bill has received royal assent before the House is prorogued? I think it must be less politically significant because the, the bill, if it became an act, would allow things to happen after the proposed end of the prorogation. I don't think it will diminish its significance as a constitutional precedent, um, which seems uh, not to have been happily received on, in most quarters as a precedent. So it's, it, as a political act, it may do. On the other hand, of course, the prorogation could still be used to kill the bill, potentially, um, and that would be another political act. And it would not be sensible. I can't help feeling that, you, that getting the business, necessary business washed up by next Thursday, if we have a, an agreement to an early general election, is also going to be quite a challenge. So the prorogation may have to be shortened anyway for purely practical purposes. And can you just tell us a little bit about, so this question came up, as you say, that the, the bill might get all, all the way through, or it might not get all the way through, and then prorogation might happen, in which case it would fall, because yes. it wouldn't receive a carryover. Um, if it um, had completed all its stages, but had not received royal assent by the point of prorogation, in your view, what would happen then? My interpretation of the procedure is that at prorogation, uh, the, the Commission is required to give royal assent to all acts agreed upon by both houses in that session. So that my interpretation, which is not any more authoritative than others, I suppose, is that it couldn't, you couldn't escape. Had it passed its all stages and been agreed upon by both houses, it would have to be given the royal assent at the prorogation commission. Interesting. Seb, can I turn to you now? We've heard from Maddie a sort of sense of how procedurally things might turn out, and, and Alistair's told us his sort of rationale for the bill. Can you just give us a sense of how you think the government is going to respond to what happened last night? Not in kind would be my general vibe from conversations that I think that Downing Street will fight this every single step of the way and there's a lot of talk around this morning about what's going to happen in the House of Lords because the bill that Alice is putting forward is going to be pushed through the Commons and I think that majority that we saw yesterday, the 27, will be pretty strong now that I think now that you've sort of crossed that Rubicon and no longer got the Conservative whip, that will stay true. But in the House of Lords, there's talk of 90 plus amendments to the business motion that will then even set out the procedure for getting the bill through the Lords in the first place. And if they really do push this and have two votes on every single thing, you're talking, I think, about 43 hours of voting to try and get this thing through between now and Monday. So that's going to be a big challenge. But we should always remind ourselves there is a big pro-European majority in the House of Lords. And that Lord Speaker, I think, takes a similar view to Speaker Burko in the Commons and will be well inclined to try and see this bill through if it passes the Commons in both of its stages with a comfortable majority. I think the question is going to be what happens this evening with the motion um, to dissolve Parliament because that's been tabled and we're expecting a vote pretty late in the day. It's going to be quite a late night for your colleagues, I think, Alistair, before this thing comes through. And 
it looks like the Labour Party's not going to support this because they don't want to f dance to Boris Johnson's tune is the line that Labour's been putting out this morning. But one thing I would look forward to is if this bill does pass, it gets through the Commons, it gets through the laws, even if they have to sit throughout the weekend. On Monday, Labour might then bring forward a motion of no confidence in the Prime Minister because once that bill is passed and a no-deal Brexit is, quote, off the table, then Labour can go hell for leather for a general election, which it wants. And now that Mr Johnson has gone from this time yesterday a working majority of one to a working majority of minus 43, um, <laughs> a good day's work in Downing Street, um, then I sort of think that a, a no-confidence motion probably has a good chance. So I think for Labour, they could have it both ways, which is to take no-deal off the table and have a general election. I just wanted to say, as far as the uh, processes in the House of Lords are concerned and the, uh, the determination, respective determinations here, um, I think yesterday was instructive because if some in Downing Street were working on their usual premise, which is that sooner or later politicians cave in, and their determination on this issue all the way along, all the vote leave determination and everything, was so strong, so overwhelming, that group in the House of Commons and everything. They were an unstoppable force because at the end of the day, reason, good sense, decency, compromise would be the watchword of uh, people like myself. I think they learned last night we're done with that. I've had enough of that. And I think as far as consideration is, is involved in the Lords, if uh, anyone in Downing Street is, is taking the view that there'll be any, uh, uh, any sense of not meeting their uh, determination with our determination, and we've got the numbers and they haven't, they're making a mistake. I think that is the big thing that has changed over the past 24 hours Absolutely. because up until now it's been the Brexit supporters in Parliament and further afield who are willing to tear up the rule book and do whatever is necessary. I think what we've seen now is um, people who want to stop no deal Brexit and pro-remain minded MPs, not yourself Alistair, are now willing to play by those same rules. So really I think all bets are off about what happens in Parliament between now and prorogation. Might not there not be a scenario, Seb, in which it's in the government's interest for the bill to pass now to get the early election and then to say, well, we'll just repeal it? I think the, the problem with what Downing Street is doing is that they, you know, they've said, we don't want an election, we don't want an election. But of course they want an election. Like, you know, the Tory party, every single thing it's done since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister was about a general election in terms of who's in the cabinet. If you look at all those people, they are clear vote leave figures from Dominic Raab to Priti Patel um, to obviously the Prime Minister himself. The policy agenda of the whole government has been about preparing for a general election. So you have to just ignore all the bluster from the Prime Minister on that. I think this could be the same case, Hannah, about the bill, because you're right, if Boris Johnson wants to have an election, which is the people versus Parliament, as it has already been framed, and if Parliament has passed this bill to stop a no-deal Brexit, take it off the table, whatever your terminology, then in some ways it is absolutely perfect, because they can say, we need a clear Conservative majority to come back and repeal this surrender bill, again, the language Boris Johnson has been tweeting this morning about this legislation, so it certainly does further what they want to, the message they want to get across. I mean, I should have, say that the timing is so tight that I can't see that they could repeal it without a bit of an extension mm. first. But anyhow, question I've been dying to ask you, Paul. If the, if the uh, Prime Minister does try, so we, as I said, the motion for an early election is on the order paper for this afternoon. He said that if, if the bill, Alistair's bill, looked like it was going through, he would, he would put that motion. 
if the House is asked to decide that question and decides it doesn't want an election, could the same question be asked again in the same session of Parliament? That's a very nice point. Um, <laughs> we, uh, the audience will remember that the Speaker had some harsh words to say about bringing back the uh, motion to approve the original Withdrawal Act, um, the meaningful vote, where he, he cited this precedent about you're not allowed to make the same go back to the same decision once made in the same session. I think you could argue that between now and next week, for example, the situation had changed. Um, or you could argue that because it is a statutory form of motion, you have no alternative to but, but to put it in the same form, and then that might override the practice of the House. It is only a rule of practice, so it can be set aside. I think the other thing that might happen, uh, conceivably, as if uh, a no-confidence motion from the opposition were tabled and passed, I don't see any great objection to then passing the early election motion in order to get round the 14-day cooling-off period that's in the FTPA if everybody, if two-thirds of the House wanted to sign up to it. So uh, there might be a logic to, 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 to if the government has lost a no-confidence motion, to then trying to get, because the 14-day cooling-off period is, is a big challenge to the whole timetable now. And nobody quite knows. It's a kind of yawning gap in the legislation. Um, nobody knows quite what's supposed to happen then, how, who's supposed to make things happen, how you initiate the various processes that could close off the 14-day or, or end the no-confidence state. So that's, there's a lot of complexities around that, and they will need disentangling. And, and the other thing you could do with the date of the election um, I guess is actually, if all parties are agreed, you could pass legislation to fix the date of the election. Very little bill probably be needed to um, amend temporarily, probably, the FTPA uh, to fix the date of the election and to shorten the campaign, the 25-day campaign uh, period. So there are lots of things that could be done if everybody has, once they have agreed, they want an election and they want to get on with it, if they're prepared to cooperate on the technicalities, there are quite a few avenues open, I think, to enable that to proceed. And just on that process and timetable, Maddie, so if there was a two-thirds vote for an election early next week, do you think by the time the election was over and the House had come back and everyone was sworn in and so on, uh, there would be time to, to pass the legislation we'd need to leave with a deal if the, if the Prime Minister got one from, your, from Europe, as, as Alistair's hoping, before the 31st of October? Well, I think, I mean, if we, if we end up going for an election, obviously the date of the election will matter, but as you say, there'll be a whole process to get the House sort of back up and running, um, which means that I think it would be highly unlikely that they w there would be enough time. Um, I mean, obviously we have seen, we're going to see today, you can pass legislation very quickly in the House of Commons, um, but this is, but the sort of, the legislation implementing the deal will be much more complicated, much longer um, than, than the bill proposed today. Um, and, and although, again, you can programme time in the Commons, you can't in the Lords in the same way. Um, although I think if the Commons do, sort of, if the Commons were willing to, in a sort of a clear majority, get behind the deal, get behind the legislation. And I can't see the Lord sort of holding it up. Um, I think the other, the other thing is, you know, even if we don't have an election, what's quite interesting is, you know, Johnson's position still is that he wants a deal. Um, if we sort of 
don't have an election, but we still pro Parliament, still pro next week, and they come back on the 14th. Um, Johnson said then he'll have a Queen's speech on the 14th, and they'll have a vote on the Queen's speech on the 21st, 22nd of October um, after the European Council. So even if he then gets the European Council, is able to agree a deal and sort of have a meaningful vote in the House under the terms of the bill, and the House supports it, you've still got barely any time to get the legislation through. I think there are six sitting days between the sort of 22nd of October and the 31st of October. So again, you can rush it through. You're going to be limiting any opportunity really for proper scrutiny. Um, and you'll be really up against it. And, and I think, again, it, it sort of depends what the text of the deal is. So if you don't have the legal text ready to go, to be put into a bill, then also it seems quite an, unlikely to be able to do it. So if actually they end up putting the same deal back and pretty much the same bill, then it might be more straightforward. But again, limited opportunity for scrutiny, and I think they'd be really, really up against it. So I expect the pressure would be to ask for a short technical extension to allow sufficient time for both houses to, to scrutinise the legislation. With that, I'm going to resist the temptation to keep asking all the questions I've got and open up to the floor. Alistair has to go at 10 to 10. Uh, we'll have to finish at 10 on the dot. So um, questions for Alistair in particular. First, can I come to this lady here? Is this the result of yesterday night? I've, I've thought that technically the 31st of October is very difficult anyway, even if there is agreement for all the reasons that Maddie gave. I don't think any of us as politicians can give you a clear answer to that question, I'm sorry. I, I suspect it's unlikely for both for yesterday's vote and for the current state of negotiations uh, uh, and the like, um, and of course a pending election. Uh, so I'm awfully sorry. I don't think we can offer you any more certainty, sadly. Um, uh, and of course, that is the whole agony of this. At some stage, we've got to, not just for our friends, but also for uh, what's happening in the United Kingdom as well. Um, with this sort of bonfire of conventions that we're seeing at the moment, and I suspect the Salisbury Convention could be stretched after the election if they try to repeal Alistair's bill, um, do you think there'll be calls for us to codify these conventions into statute? Sorry, could you give your name? Oh, Ian Corby. Thank you. Do you mean as far as a written constitution or anything like that? Yes, for the co at least for the conventions. Um, my sense as a practicing politician, uh, until three weeks next Tuesday, presumably, um, <laughs> w w has always been, I I'm rather fond of the flexibility that our constitution has. It does mean it works by convention and uh, sort of the, the so-called gentleman's agreement that Peter Hennessy and others have been, been speaking about. And that means it frays at the edges when you get these sharp divisions. On the other hand, you can only imagine these days how many times people would be running to the court to deal with a codified constitution all that. For preference, even though it's difficult, I'd really keep it as it is. Paul, can I just ask you to address that one as well? Because, I mean, certainly, as someone who worked in the House of Commons, I sort of had a sense that I understood roughly what the rules of the House of Commons were, but I, now I feel that my understanding of Commons procedure is very 2016. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how does it feel to you? I, I think it's, it's clear that... I mean, it's interesting. The FTPA is a good example of where you, you put in a convention into statute effectively, um, the, the No Confidence Convention in principle. And it's thrown up quite a lot of problems. We see um, the, the Act has got quite a lot of holes in it. I notice that Section 7 of the Act requires it to be reviewed next year by a committee. So I'll be putting myself forward to chair that. Um, I think House of Laws Committee is looking at it, isn't it? Yes. Um, 
but it's it, it, it clearly raises problems. But I, I think, as, I mean, as many commentators, I'm not originally the the rules of the House of Commons themselves are very flexible, as we have seen. And I, I might concentrate. Standing orders are part, in a sense, part of the written part of the part of the written parts of the unwritten constitution, and they are open to wide interpretation. And they again work on a certain amount of, of understanding. But what, where things break down, and I think this is what the situation is now, if you have a government with a solid majority, it gets its way and everybody goes along with it. Where you have a government that can't command a majority, that's really what's begun to fray yes, right. the rules. Yeah. And if you're going to be in a world where governments regularly don't have a solid majority, then you are going to have to have a think about how much of these conventions you need to solidify because they will move much harder, they will be used um, and abused potentially much more by minority if governments are a permanent minority. And I think that's where the issue has, the issue that's really brought all this to the forefront. John. Uh, yes, John, John Pete from The Economist. Um, uh, I'd like to ask Alistair, yesterday, the one thing Boris said, Boris Johnson said in response to every single question he was asked, and indeed after he lost the vote, was that you've cut the legs from under him and you've destroyed his negotiating position, which seems to rest on the claim that the only way to get any further concessions from the EU is to make it clear to them that if they don't give them, there will be no deal. Um, do you think there's anything in that or do you think it's complete rubbish? I do think it's complete rubbish. Uh, and, and, and let me just explain very briefly uh, why. Um, since 2016, we have had a variety of excuses for why we haven't been able to get the deal that Britain wants. And in no particular order, they run, it's a Remainer Parliament, it's a Remainer PM, it's Martin Selmayr, it's, uh, it's, it's the EU itself, it's Ireland uh, coming up with something. What we need is a Brexiteer Prime Minister determined to take us out on, on any given date with no deal, and then they'll cave in. And now we've got a Brexiteer Prime Minister, and his determination <coughs> to leave cannot be faulted. And now there's a new excuse. It's us, uh, suddenly, that's the reason we can't get this negotiation. It isn't the members of the Cabinet who voted against a deal and prevented us leaving and thereby undermined a government and they now find themselves in a new one. It's never them. Two things I've constantly said about this issue over the years, and they've both turned out to be true. Firstly, they never, ever stop. And I told successive Conservative leaders this going back 20, 25 years. They never, ever stopped. They always wanted out of the European Union. They never wanted reform or anything. They wanted out, and they, they will have their way. And the second thing is, it will never ever be their fault. It will always be somebody else's fault. And Jacob Rees-Mogg said, I think in, uh, at some stage, it, it will be difficult for the next 50 years, but it won't be their fault. No, this is a, a pure blame game. Um, I think the idea that, I, I'll tell you what Brussels is looking for. They are quite right to say to the British Prime Minister, if we agree with something, uh, with you, can you get it through the Commons? I'm not going to stop them. I will, if, if the Prime Minister does a deal with the European Union on behalf of the British government, I will, as I did with Theresa May, I will back it. So will every single colleague who sat round the table with the Prime Minister at this time yesterday morning. It won't be us that will stop it. It's others. There's no pressure on them. They're not being threatened. Uh, they're not being called the stumbling block. So actually, genuinely, no. One of the reasons I was so determined to vote as I did last night was I think the central premise of the Prime Minister is mistaken. 
it may be an honest mistake, a sincere mistake, but if you, if you believe, if you look, if you find your own roadblock and believe so determinedly that's the only one, you miss everything else that's going on, as I indicated about the way in which we need to understand our partners and negotiate properly. A negotiation isn't giving people a series of demands and saying, unless you agree to all these, you're not negotiating. So I'm sorry, I don't agree with the underlying premise of the government, which is why I'm leaving. Yeah, did you want to? I just wanted to add quickly, just some quick, two quick thoughts. First of all, the backstop just has to be one of the most misunderstood policies. Absolutely. In it, and this is Absolutely. one of the most extraordinary things. If you speak to anybody who's ever waited, even touched the European Commission building, they will tell you they do not want the backstop activated. It's an awful policy, and it is simply there as an insurance policy. You know, yes. pe people which we asked for. Yes, and and this was my second point: is that the backstop. The EU offered us a Northern Ireland only backstop. Why didn't we accept that? Because of the DUP. And that's very simple as that, because if you look at the way things are going to pass, there has to be a border somewhere if you're going to do Brexit. And the natural place for that has to be, I'm sorry to say, in the Irish Sea. But in Boris Johnson's statement yesterday, there was a fascinating segment that got overlooked in everything that happened yesterday. And the Prime Minister actually said, I urge my colleagues to listen to this very carefully. And Boris Johnson set out how he would be open to a common agri-food regime across the Irish border. That for me was him laying the groundwork for having an election, getting a majority maybe, dumping the DUP and accepting the Northern Ireland only backstop which many of the Brexiters and Alistair's par uh, former party sorry, um, would not care about. They would accept the Northern Ireland only backstop because they can have their Canada plus minus whatever for GB, let Northern Ireland stay locked into the EU's regulatory regime and that's the Brexit they probably wanted. The only reason they couldn't do that was because of Theresa May's lost election in 2017. Philip, Philip Rycroft, formerly of DEPSU. Um, I can confirm, by the way, that the withdrawal agreement bill is a very long, complicated one. Uh, would, uh, I, I remember just before um, uh, November last year worrying about the timetable for that on a March 31st exit. So if you give me six days at that time, I certainly would have been panicking. Um, I just want to explore the sort of deal question a little bit more. And you've just explained, sort of partly answered the question I was going to ask, is what sort of deal is achievable um, uh, in the time that we've got remaining, given the resistance of the EU to change in the backstop. But really a question for Alistair, and your strategy hinges off um, there being a deal available that the House of Commons might vote for, and that deal clearly has to be one that's acceptable to the EU. And given where everybody's at on this, and despite the noises from Merkel and Macron, uh, which look a little bit like they're managing the blame game as well, it looks to me as actually at this stage, the only deal that is available um, uh, for the EU and for a majority in the Commons is actually Mrs May's deal. Um, uh, and if that is the case, is there any way of articulating that majority in the time we've got left? Alistair, would you like to go at that one? Um, it, it, Parliament and Parliament's history is littered with issues that have come back again and again and again before they're accepted. Uh, Acts of Parliament that uh, started off as minority views got voted down and gradually they come back and back as mood changes, circumstances change and the need for legislation comes in and we can all think of uh, individual examples. Um, I, I, I fully appreciate that uh, when you start to think about bringing back the withdrawal agreement again with the majorities and everything, it, it, it looks as ludicrous a proposition as 
any other proposition. And that's my point. If nothing else is going to work, well, why not look at it again? What are the basics? It has already been agreed by 28 sovereign nations. The only people who haven't agreed with it is the British Parliament. If I was a Brexiteer, I would believe it took me out of the EU. We stopped paying them. There's no common agriculture and fisheries policy. The jurisdiction of the European ECJ is restricted to a degree. And we have a transition period in which the Brexiteers are in charge. A Brexiteer cabinet, a Brexiteer prime minister is in charge. I have to, I'm, I'm not a Brexiteer, as perhaps has become slightly clear during the course of the past few years. But in 2016, I think a number of Brexiteers would have bit your hand off for that. And what has happened over the, over the last couple of years is, is they have become so hardened to only wanting the perfect that something that provides 99% of what they might have argued for in 2016 is on the table and they're not taking it. I would be worried if I was a Brexiteer about an uncertain future, a general election, which I might not win. And if I don't win, I don't know what the mood of the country would be if the argument went back to the country in those circumstances. And I might lose Brexit altogether. Um, I don't favour that, as you know. I think we should leave with a deal. But there are plenty of other people who don't. And that argument will come through. So I might be tempted, knowing I've not got a majority in the House of Commons now, knowing that there is now a pretty resistant rebel alliance who are going to fight those who have fought us so consistently, as determinedly as they have fought us, I might actually want to take the bird in the hand at this stage. It's not going to be up to me, it's going to be up to them. But I don't think it's a bad proposition. Seb, do you want to...? Yeah, there's one group of MPs that annoy me more than any others. There's a lot of them in Parliament at the moment. And they sent me an email last night, just to clarify what was going on, obviously, last night. And it was called Labour MPs for a Deal. And it was 17 Labour MPs, led by Stephen, Stephen Kinney, King, yeah. who said, we would like to bring back Theresa May's deal for a fourth time last night. That was the moment they decided to do that. And the... <laughs> I cannot begin to express the frustration to fear at those people who they had three opportunities to back it in, which Alice said, if you promised that to Brexit in 2016, they would have bitten your hand off to take Absolutely. that. And that is just the, the frustrating story. The deal, that, the best deal to come through again is Theresa May's deal. And I can imagine Mrs May, if that deal does somehow get passed, she will be laughing because she has taken all of the heavy work of negotiating that deal over three years Absolutely that right. pulls apart, you know, EU membership. That deal is picking and choosing parts of membership, which was in some ways an extraordinary feat of British diplomacy given everything else that is going on. So a new deal inverted commas, that comes back will look exactly like the old deal. It might be a Northern Ireland only backstop or the Northern Ireland implementation scheme or whatever way you call it, but it will look exactly the same thing. There will be some Brexiters who won't accept it. But don't forget, if in this situation, post an election, Boris Johnson will have a new Conservative Party. It will not have Alistair and some of his colleagues in, but that party will be elected on the mandate, we assume, of implementing that deal. So he might try and push it through. Maybe those 17 Labour MPs for a deal might realise what they missed three times and actually vote for it this time. But at this stage, I think it's just too uncertain to say whether that would still get through. And as far as Conservative colleagues are concerned, presumably if there's a precedent after last night, if a new bill comes forward uh, and the Spartans don't vote for it, they won't stand at the next election either. Because they'll, they'll have the whip taken away from them. So, uh, you know, stakes have just risen that little bit higher. And so that's the possible scenario if Boris Johnson wins the election. What if Jeremy Corbyn wins? 
Well, if Jeremy Corbyn wins, my reading of where the, um, the polls are at the moment is that it's pretty much impossible for him to win a clear parliamentary majority. So you're talking about a rainbow coalition, which is obviously going to be Liberal Democrats, who will probably pick up a whole bunch of Tory seats, Putney, Wimbledon, probably not Uxbridge, but you sort of get the idea, um, plus the Scottish Nationalists, who will completely wipe the board in Scotland, clearly, once again. So you're talking about... Um, a platform, a government that we'd stitch together for two referendums, which would be for Labour's policy, which is a referendum on any deal. So Labour would go back and negotiate a new deal, which would be Theresa May's deal once again. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going anywhere. And versus Remain, and how knows what Labour would go in that position. But the SNP would also want a Scottish independence referendum. So we could have two more um, bouts of direct democracy and how, see how that chimes with our parliamentary system. The IFG will be here to guide you through it all. Um, uh, Francis Tyrrell, um, just stepping back from Westminster and the bubble that we perhaps sit in, uh, despite what you've all said about Theresa May's deal being seen as a very good deal, um, certainly within the public at large, it is now contaminated as being remaining in Norbert name, effectively. That's how it's seen for those that voted to leave, and obviously it isn't remaining for those that voted to remain. Um, is, what is the point, therefore, in continually tweaking with short extensions to fiddle around with this deal, which is contaminated, frankly, uh, in the public mindset? Uh, do you not need to start afresh, ask the European Union for something different? I mean, the, the government previously went to the European Union and asked for pretty much the benefits of full membership, and the European Union reasonably said, well, here's the price of that. Uh, the government hasn't yet gone back and asked for something less, bronze membership, if you like, rather than gold membership and found out what the European Union would charge, if you like, in terms of commitment for that. Do we not need a longer extension to deliver that? But conversely, how do you communicate any of this to the public if you want to go into an election? If you go into an election with a withdrawal agreement with some tweaks, unless the public think, well, I'm just so fed up with this now, I'll vote for you so we can get it done, they're not going to buy that if they voted leave. And if they voted remain, it's still not remaining, is it? I guess that's one for you, Alistair. It's, it, it's a very good question. Um, what the public knows in detail about any of these these bills is is open to to question. The, the, the public, of course, is, is led. It's bound to be. There's only so much information people can take in. It's led by responsible newspapers. It's read by irresponsible newspapers uh, and the media and everything else. They've been told by media in whose interest it is to write down the withdrawal agreement that it's Remain and Brino and all that. That's going to be hard to overcome. I, I entirely agree with that. Uh, and that says something about the way that we've handled this. Um, but uh, equally, um, newspapers are extraordinary in the way in which they can move very sharply uh, in certain circumstances. And uh, if, um, if certain newspapers realize that the way in which uh, the prime minister survives is by having something tweaked, the Boris tweak, the, the Boris answer, I think you might be amazed at how that might be written up in certain quarters. Um, and then uh, a deal becomes something completely different. That's one way. A longer extension, well, the Prime Minister can't survive with a longer extension. He's, he's, he's bet the mortgage on leaving on October the 31st, so he's boxed himself in there. And a longer extension would open up the whole thing, and I think there would be some resistance in the public, because the, the charge against me, and I fully accept it, is... You know, where are the never-ending extensions going to go on? 
because the argument about uncertainty amongst the public and business and everything else is just as strong as the argument against no deal, in a sense. People do just want it done. I don't believe that people should have it done no matter what the consequences, but it's a strong argument. I think arguing for a longer extension would be a bigger argument. I still come back that no matter how difficult it is, I think what we've got on the stocks is as good uh, an opportunity at this stage with all the other uncertainties as anything else. And I really, really do want to see it given a run because, as uh, Seb said, you know, there, there are Labour members going around kicking themselves about what they've missed. There, there really are. And for the country to be in the position it's in because people held out for, for their particular unicorn seems desperately unfair on my constituents who are worried about their future, uh, on constituents all over the country, the future of the union, the relationship with Ireland, the relationship with the EU. I just think colleagues should just think of what they are risking and take a deep breath and ask themselves if what is on offer may just be good enough for them to go with and then they can sell it to the public because that's their job. So. Just very quickly, so one of the things I do for the FT is I have a fortnightly column where I go around the country and writing about policy and politics from just different parts to get a sense of what people feel. And the most striking thing I've heard from different parts of the country is this sense that Theresa May's deal, we weren't in, we weren't out, and people didn't understand that. If you sit down with someone and say to them, you don't pay money, you end free movement, you have a bit more trade friction, but essentially it maintains our just-in-time supply to whatever, people go, oh, that's great, that sounds happy to me, but why don't they know that? Theresa May never tried to sell it and she made two big political misjudgments in my view. One was she never laid the political groundwork for those Labour MPs to back the deal and the second was she never really tried to sell that deal. Within about 72 hours of that deal landing the PR war was lost with the public because the Brexiters who were then dare I say, more organised than Alistair's side of the argument, came out and just destroyed it in the public, abetted by some corners of the media. And you would be amazed at how quickly Theresa May's treacherous deal is Boris Johnson's victory outside the EU. It's all about PR. People don't understand, I'm sorry to say, the details of the withdrawal agreement. You can totally reverse that around and sell this as a new thing. And to mention one newspaper as well, the Daily Telegraph, like, are they, if Boris Johnson comes back with a new Brexit deal, are they going to say this is... This is Front the, page. Yeah, exactly. The, Boris, Boris, the backstop Boris is gone. Well, Boris gets it. Exactly. Alison, you've got to go. Robert's got to... Got I, I must answer Robert's question. Um, My dear friend, we've been on this march a long time. <laughs> Can you take that? Well, we've been on part of the march together. Um, Rob Warren, I'm former member of the European, former Conservative member of the European Parliament, and I'm still a Conservative <laughs> for the moment, at least. My question is quite simply: I would have liked to have asked the question from over there, but it is a different one, and that is: Are there chances of any outside pressure on the government on Boris? And I'm thinking particularly of business. And I remember during Boris's campaign, uh, he met with business organisations who were very unhappy, obviously, um, and they appeared to come out a bit more happy. I'm historically remembering a remark Boris made about business, which uses a word I don't think I'd want to use here. Any comment? Um, I think this is a really big moment for the Prime Minister. Um, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't vote for him. I voted for uh, the, the Jeremy Hunt. But I, I, I don't in any way uh, 
deny his extraordinary character, characteristics, persuasiveness and everything else. The question for him is to use those skills around a core belief that he will then stick to regardless of other advice that may be coming in. We all know that Boris Johnson wanted to be Prime Minister more than anything else in the world and that's not a bad ambition for people to have but it's not sufficient. You've got to know why you want to be Prime Minister and you've got to know what to do with it when you've got it. He's got a range of skills that others haven't. If, if, Boris, had, if Boris Johnson had got the original withdrawal agreement, what Seb said just wouldn't have happened. Would he have sold it the moment he came back? Of course he would, and we would have been in a different situation. If he is persuaded personally by voices outside making a case to say, look at the risks that we're running and everything, you're the person who can do this. If he can then weld that to serious courage of his convictions to see off advisers who will give him false advice about what to do, then he could make it. He could be a great prime minister. But he's got to take a challenge that so far he hasn't had to do. He's got to, he's got to succeed in something where he faces down the people who have, to a degree, used his great abilities, perhaps for their own ends. Uh, and it's been a convenient marriage for both of them. I don't deny the sincerity on either side. But this may be the point at which he's got to part company and say, thanks for getting me into number 10, but it's my job now. I don't owe you anything. I owe the country more. And I've got to take some decisions now that you might not like, but it's the best thing for the country, and I'm going to do that. And I think if people can personally persuade him and he can make that jump, then, he has a chance of being the Churchillian figure he would like to be, as opposed to what I think some people would see his character as at the moment. He's got, he's got some people to convince, but if he could do it in the manner that I've described, it would be possible. He's got the ability, but he's, I think he's got to demonstrate something that he has not yet demonstrated. Um, but a bit like other significant figures in the past, you don't know what you can do until you're faced with it. And just maybe this is his moment. I don't know. I would like to see a colleague succeed. Of course I would. But I think that's the challenge he's got to, he's got to face. Forgive me, I have to slip away and talk to the House of Lords about Iran. Um, <laughs> so I must go. Forgive me. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks Thanks so I'm just going to throw in another one of my own here because I was on a panel yesterday where there were politicians throwing accusations at each other of, of who was more in favour of chaos and was the chaos of no deal worse than the chaos of endless extensions and uncertainty around uh, what was happening with Brexit. Um, and being someone who worked in Parliament for a long time, obviously I, I have uh, a, a narrower focus sometimes and it strikes me, Paul, the Speaker's decision yesterday to allow the House to make a decision on an emergency debate which is allowing the whole legislative process today rather than it being as it normally would have been a neutral motion, just mm -hmm. as his decision earlier in the year uh, in relation to the word forthwith, mm -hmm. these sorts of uh, uh, interpretations, uh, some people see them as breaks with uh, precedent, um, have really created a lot of uncertainty and the potential for chaos in the House of Commons. Do you think a, a that 
business managers are just thinking, well, it's okay because when we come back with our big majority at some point after an election, we'll just tie this all down, we'll clarify all these procedures, and uh, we'll just sort of step back from Parliament thinking it's got all this power of the executive. Do you think that's tenable now? Will Parliament wear that? Or do you think we're in for further chaos? It will depend on the numbers, won't it? As I said in answer to an earlier question, are the parliamentary rules, just to narrowly focus on those, are based essentially on an assumption of a binary um, and majoritarian system. And if you don't have a binary majoritarian system, you have to change the rules. Otherwise, they won't work. They, and, and you'll have unpredictability and chaos. I, mean, I think sometimes the speaker's creative use of procedure has been slightly overstated in the sense that in all cases, he, doesn't, he allows the House to make decisions. He doesn't make most of the decisions. And he's chosen to allow the House to make decisions in circumstances which some think are bending the rules. But the House has chosen to do it, and on a number of occasions, a majority has, in effect, emerged through that process. Um, so, you know, fundamental to the rules of the House is debate followed by a vote, and the majority um, prevails. And it's not necessarily obvious to me that a set of rules which prevent debate or prevent a vote are facilitating effective parliamentary operations. So I, I, I don't think these decisions, I, I, I don't think it is chaos. I think it's unpredictable and it's less manageable. But it's, it, actually the rules have held up in some ways quite well. They have delivered... They haven't delivered a, a deal, but that's because there is no majority for a deal. Um, but they have delivered decisions, they have delivered procedures, they have delivered processes, and they've ended up making uh, it possible for Parliament to have a, the argument it needs to have. So I, I'm, I'm not that pessimistic about it. I think the worst thing that could happen is a, a government with a big majority trying to close every loophole in every rule so that the, the, the minority could not find a way in to have its voice heard. That wouldn't be a particularly positive, well, it wouldn't be an untold positive development for the House of Commons. Um, if a government has a majority, it has nothing to fear. Why would it need to start battening down the hatches for everything? It wouldn't need to. So, of course, the reason we had this situation yesterday with the SO number 24 yep. being used to take control of the order paper was partly because in our system government has such a lot of control over what happens in the Commons. Yes. Do you think that's tenable going forward? Do you think there'll be calls for things like we heard in the past the right committee suggested there should be a house business committee so there had to be wider agreement on the agenda um, so that it wasn't the case that the government could just prevent opportunities for the debates that the House wanted to have? I wonder if it's really... Yes, I mean, there are. And one should go back and remember that perhaps the starting point for the referendum and all that's followed from it was the decision to establish the right committee, which then allowed a vote on, a, on a ref, an in-out referendum back in 2012-13, um, where I think 85 members of the Conservative Party rebelled against the party line, to indicate, and that spooked party sufficiently perhaps on some interpretations to start this process. 
Mr. Burke also bent the rules slightly by allowing the famous Fourth Amendment on the King, Queen's speech in 2013, which was also a rebellion on the referendum. So that, that momentum started with that. I think the evidence, therefore, is that it's quite unpredictable when you allow the backbenches to have more control over the initiative. Is that a bad or a good thing? Um, it very much depends where you stand on that kind of thing. So I, I, the issue is not so much government control as usual channel control. An awful lot, we, I'm sure most of you in this audience are aware, but an awful lot is agreed between the usual channels. It's not, it looks like the government trampling over Parliament, but actually it's agreed with the usual channels. What that keeps out are the minority, the, the, those who don't have access to the usual channels. So if you move to a House Business Committee, that would be moving things away from the tacit agreements, the behind-the-scenes agreements, into the open. And that would have its up and downsides, as far as I'm prepared <laughs> to go. Um, Seb, do you think a general election would solve anything? Uh, oh, God. Um, well, look, I think whatever happens next with Brexit, it feels like we need a fresh democratic mandate for whatever comes next, be it a no-deal Brexit, be it a deal Brexit, or be it a second referendum to potentially overturn the 2016 result. Because, you know, as Paul was just saying, the House has proven three times it cannot pass a Brexit deal. It can delay Brexit, it cannot offer any solution. You know, every alternative, single market, rejected. Customs Union, rejected. Theresa May's rejected. No deal, rejected. That is not a sustainable situation and it is not going to solve where we go to. So if we have a general election, how is that going to look? Well, Scotland, as I said before, the Tories will lose probably at least 10, if not more, of their seats. So reversing what happened in 2017, reversing a lot of what Ruth Davidson did, because as I'm sure you're aware, there is no leader of the Scottish Tory party at the moment, and there's no one really viable who has her appeal, her charisma, or her connection with the Scottish electorate. Now, they do have a quite clear message, in fact, which is we are the only party of the union, because the Labour Party is now in favour of Scottish independence referendum again. The SNP, they're obviously not, and uh, the Liberal Democrats have never been a particularly strong unionist voice, but I can't see them doing very well there. They lose a whole bunch of seats to the Liberal Democrats in place. You know, St Albans is one that I've been to recently. I'd be very surprised if that doesn't go Liberal Democrat. A lot of the ones are in London. So the key question for the Tories is, can they pick up those northern Midland seats that voted leave? And that is clearly what the whole government strategy is about with this people versus parliament trying to pick up on that public angst that Brexit hasn't been resolved yet. The issue for those seats is there is a pathological dislike of Margaret Thatcher and the Tories that goes back decades. Has Brexit broken that? And that's what will be tested in this election, in those seats. Can they get around you know, deindustrialization, the zero hours economy, all the issues, the bad infrastructure, all the issues facing those places say, but actually, we care about Brexit, we like that Boris Johnson, and we will go for that. I think they can pick up at least 10 seats in those places, but can they pick up enough seats to make up for the Liberal Democrat losses and the losses in Scotland? It's very difficult to see how that happens. So I think a general election probably gives us another home parliament. That's sort of how it looks now, which might not sound as if it solves anything, but I think it would begin to get us towards something. Because if you think about that, Labour, um, Scottish National Party, Lib Dem, Rainbow Alliance, that is a soft Brexit slash second referendum um, majority there. So I think that's probably where we're heading. But it's going to be a long, long time before this thing is solved. And when are we having an election? 
this year, I'd say probably, yeah. I think, <laughs> I think, I think probably, probably very much. I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be at all surprised if by this time next week we're in election territory, if it's been called. Maddie, here at the Institute we are interested in the Constitution, we're interested in the processes of government, we're interested in the relationship between government and parliament. Do you think that what's happened in the co context of the process of Brexit so far has done any, sort of changed the relationship between Parliament and, and government in any lasting way? I mean, I think it's quite difficult. It's difficult to say at this stage whether it has, because as Paul said, you know, we're in a situation where we've got a minority government, which already makes the sort of rules that govern parliamentary procedures sort of slightly harder to, it sort of, you know, it bends them at the edges, basically. And also we've got a situation where they're dealing with Brexit, which, again, cuts across both parties. So it's sort of the interaction of the two has clearly put the relationship between parliament and government under strain significantly. Um, I think, given what Seb just said, that we're imagining there probably will be another hung parliament, um, we can probably see that, that, that it, it seems difficult to see how they're going to just magically rebuild that relationship because we really have seen under Theresa May and then further under Johnson this deterioration quite significantly. I mean, what um, at the Institute for earlier this year, we put out a report sort of called Parliament After Brexit where we wanted sort of, our view is that actually a lot, this Brexit process has sort of shone a light on the areas of how Parliament works that actually maybe already was sort of slightly um, under pressure and this, this whole process has put it under pressure more and actually I think that when, you know, at some point, I mean, we say, we say sooner rather than later, but actually there needs to be a step back and have a look at how Parliament works um, to see whether it can sort of adjust itself for potentially new territory where hung parliaments, minority governments become more the norm um, to see how that they can cope with that. But I do think that at this stage, I mean, you know, it's really is at a, at a, at a real low. Um, and, and I think, you know, it could still get worse. I don't, I don't think we can say that it's all going to suddenly get rosy after a general election and it's all going to be fine. So... Um, I do think there are some wider questions that need to be thought about um, that's been raised by the Brexit process. Can I just quickly add one, one quick thought to that, which is, yeah, that the idea that we can just go back to the 2015-2010 era where you have a government trying to form a majority, the British electorate is incredibly volatile at the moment and, try, and posters have a real challenge of trying to figure out what an election would look like because of the voter flows. You know, there was a huge change between 15 and 17 where a lot of the Lib Dem vote went to Labour and obviously the UKIP vote went to the Tories. The changes, again, posters time between 17 and now has been just as significant. So this idea that we're going to forming a government looks almost impossible so if we are going to be in this era for the next couple of you know years maybe even decades of having minority governments that's going to pose big challenges because how are you going to get business done um, and again this might come back to the fixed term parliament which i think is the most god-awful piece of legislation please just repeal it like it would give me so much happiness <laughs> and on that note um <laughs> i hope you'll join me in thanking the panel for a really fascinating discussion.